So that's great singing. But uh, honestly, you sing like you're about four times the number in the room. So, uh, so it really was great singing. Uh, thank you so much again for the welcome to be here with you today. We're back in uh, Colossians this evening, uh, Colossians chapter 2. We took in on a little bit of chapter 1 this morning. We're in Colossians chapter 2 this evening. Uh, great to be with you again from Bethany uh, Baptist in Bangor, uh, where your Richard is uh, this evening. Uh, Colossians, we're reading from verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6 to verse 23. Before we do that, let's just uh, recap a little bit just for 30 seconds or so. So uh, Paul writes, doesn't he, to this church of Christians. It's a group that he hasn't actually met. The gospel came to them through someone else who visited and shared it with them. Uh, But he writes to share how excited he is about the impact the gospel has made in their lives and to say that that's exactly what the good news of Jesus should be doing, turning their lives upside down. Because God has brought them from the dominion of darkness uh, into the bright and glorious kingdom of his son, Jesus Christ. And so they absolutely should be living now in this life in the light of the coming king, uh, living as his subjects, living in the way of their king who already reigns in their lives and who will one day be seen by all as faith gives way to sight, as we've just been reading. Nothing too controversial uh, in that, we might think, but that's not quite what the Colossians are hearing Uh, week by week as they meet. From voices a little closer to home, they're hearing something slightly different, and we get a sense of it in chapter 2. So let's read uh, chapter 2, verses 6 to 23. Colossians chapter 2, Paul says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, 
from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Uh, we will uh, finish our reading there. I think um, in a few minutes we will just spill over a little bit into chapter 3. So do, do keep that open in front of you if you can. Uh, perhaps in the Bible, perhaps in the phone, however it is that you want to follow along tonight, do keep that open. Let's pray just before we get into it, shall we? Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we pray tonight to the God uh, whose fullness dwells in the Lord Jesus, uh, Jesus who himself has filled us in him, filled us with, uh, with hope and with joy and with love, with forgiveness, with mercy, uh, with every good gift that comes from uh, our Father of lights. And so we pray tonight, Father, that you would, uh, you would reveal that to us. You would reveal something of what you have done for us in Christ uh, as we uh, study this, this passage together. Would you, uh, would you do us good through it? Would you encourage our hearts and stir us uh, to, to give thanks? Would our hearts be filled with thankfulness uh, for the Lord Jesus as we consider him this evening? Amen. Amen. Well, I, it was a, there was a, an April Fool's... A prank played by the British astronomer Sir Patrick Moore. Maybe you remember Sir Patrick Moore. He's long dead now. He was an astronomer, I think. I was going to say astrologer, but I think that's something different. Um, uh, astronomer. So he was always on the BBC radio and whatnot. So on April Fool's Day, he was on BBC radio in the early morning. And he, he declared that, that a, 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 a rare alignment of the planets in the solar system would lead on Earth to there being... Uh, a, a, a sort of gravitational or an anti-gravitational effect that the planets would counteract the effect of the gravity of the, the earth uh, and that we would all feel lighter at, I think he said, 9.47 that morning, which of course was during his slot on the, on the radio show. So dozens of listeners phoned in to say that at 9.47 they had indeed felt lighter, including one lady who phoned in to say that she and her 11 companions who were around for, for morning coffee or what have you had wafted about the room uh, on this particular morning. I don't know what they were, uh, what they were sharing in the, in the cups of tea, but they, they'd been wafting around the room, noticing this sort of anti-gravitational effect. And of course, it was an April Fool. They'd all been fooled, and it was uh, complete nonsense. Well, Paul writes this chapter because he does not want these Colossian Christians, these young believers, to be fooled in a much more serious way. Uh, so as we get into that, let me ask you, how do you know you're a Christian? There's something you don't want to be fooled about. You don't want to be wrong about that, do you? How do you know that you're a Christian? How do you know that you're forgiven by God, you're welcomed by him, you're alive in him, you have a future with him? What is it that reassures you about this stuff? We talk about serious things on Sundays. Uh, you know, How do you go home in the afternoon and, and walk the dog with a kind of cheery disposition? How do you uh, drop off to sleep on a Sunday night after all the serious and even eternal things that have been discussed uh, and covered uh, in our meetings. What in your life as a Christian 
uh, if anything indeed, reassures you that you're doing the right things, you're walking the right way, you're responding correctly to God, and you're enjoying all that he would have for you to enjoy in him. Uh, well, in this chapter in Colossians, Paul writes to these fairly young Christians, young in the faith, and tells them to watch out, that they could easily be fooled in this whole question. They could be duped, they could be taken in. If they go looking for reassurance in the wrong place, they will be on shaky ground. If they listen to the wrong voices, they're going to lose their way. Uh, so he warns them not to be taken in by empty and deceptive philosophy. And we read the between the lines of this chapter and realize that someone is attempting to fool these young Christians, maybe on purpose, maybe just uh, through... Uh, carelessness in the in the teaching but they're they're going to be fooled and that's deadly serious because that will rob them of everything they have because they already have everything in Christ uh, so Paul says don't be duped keep going with Christ you've got all that you need in Christ alone and that's where we're going to start uh, tonight with our first heading uh, keep going with Christ Jesus as Lord keep going with Christ Jesus as Lord this is um uh, starting with verses 6 and 7. So if you've got that in front of you, I encourage you to, to see it and, and read over it again there. Verse 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him. People often say, don't they, uh, start as you mean to go on. Well, Paul says, go on as you started. Go on in the Christian life the same way that you started it. How did they start out as Christians, these Colossians? By receiving Christ Jesus the Lord. Now, the Colossians had never met Jesus. In fact, they'd never even met Paul who's writing to them. It was Epaphras, a fellow worker of Paul's, who, who brought the gospel to, uh, to Colossae. And people there received Jesus as Lord. They heard that message and believed in him. They believed in him as the Lord of the whole universe. And so they asked him to be the Lord of their own lives. He is the Lord. And they asked him to be their Lord. Remember how Paul described Jesus in chapter one. So uh, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the, the firstborn, in other words, the heir of all creation. By him, all things were created in heaven and earth. Uh, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So he is the Lord who made me. Jesus made me. What am I made for? I'm made for Jesus. Who keeps my heart beating every second of every day? Jesus. Who is the Lord of my life, whether I acknowledge him or not? Well, it's Jesus. Don't know, uh, I don't know if you uh, swore allegiance to our new king yesterday. Uh, wasn't that part of the, the, the ceremony? Well, when news rippled out through the Roman Empire of a, of a new emperor, a new Caesar, that was simply a fact. Uh, there was a new, a new boss. There was a new man at the top. It didn't matter if you didn't like it. It didn't matter even if you didn't believe it. It was a fact, and it was a jolly good idea to pledge your allegiance to this new emperor. Well, these Colossians have heard about someone uh, a good deal greater than that, the creator, Lord of the whole universe. Uh, and so they've pledged their allegiance to him. And that is simply how you become a Christian. It's what makes you a Christian, receiving Jesus as Lord, bowing the knee to him and saying, Jesus, I want to give you control of my life. You are, you are the Lord. I want you to be my Lord. Um, sometimes, I always feel like I'm on shaky ground with this. 
Uh, but sometimes Northern Ireland is spoken of as a Christian country. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe you think that. Uh, certainly Christians have had a lot of influence here over the years. I put it to you that there is no such thing as a Christian country. Um, that if Jesus isn't your Lord in charge of your life, then you are not a Christian. It doesn't matter where you were born. It doesn't matter whether you come to church, what your uh, political views are. It doesn't matter whether you've been baptized. If Jesus is not your Lord, then you are not a Christian. And if he is your Lord, then you are. That's the sort of uh, statement that's designed to make us, at least some of us, uh, very unsure. It doesn't mean that uh, to be a Christian, you've got to be uh, perfect in the, your obedience. We make lots of mistakes. Of course we do. It's not about perfection. It's about direction. Uh, so am I looking to Jesus? Do I want to live for him? Uh, do I try to live for him? Am I making some progress with him? Uh, do, do I enjoy him? Or do I never give him a second thought? And so if, uh, if Jesus is your Lord, then this chapter is for you. Paul's about to warn you not to get taken in by empty teaching that can only rob you of what you already have in Jesus. You already have everything in him. And if Jesus is not your Lord, well, then you need to listen as well because Paul's about to lay out two options, slavery to empty ideas or freedom and life through the Lord of all creation. Well, here's his first instruction uh, to these young Christians. Just as you received Christ as Lord, so walk in him. Uh, not uh, start as you mean to go on, but go on as you started. Uh, go on in the Christian life the same way you started. Keep going with Christ Jesus as Lord. So keep going with Christ Jesus as Lord. Uh, and secondly, then don't be taken in, don't be taken captive by empty religion. Don't be taken captive by empty religion. So we're getting closer to the, the nub of the issue. Let's read verse 8 again. Uh, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Uh, so, so, so there are two options here, being taken captive by this philosophy, this empty deceit, or something else that's according to Christ that we haven't got to yet. And it's tempting to think here that Paul has in mind the philosophies and the religions and the worldviews out there that you might learn about in an RE class at school or you might uh, hear about on the news or in some other programs on the television or read about in the newspaper. And for sure, everyone in the world has faith of some sort. Uh, Muslims have faith in Allah. Hindus have faith in thousands of gods, Buddhists, Jews, agnostics, even atheists have faith, don't they? I think it takes a lot of faith to believe that all space and time and matter suddenly exploded into existence uh, with no cause and no origin. That takes a lot of faith. I don't think I have that much faith. Uh, they, they have a faith that there's no God out there. And sometimes that's a very thought through thing and sometimes it's just for convenience. And I don't think Paul is thinking of these vastly different worldviews. That's, that's not what's most likely to draw these Colossians away from Jesus. They've already made a huge turn away from the gods of their families and their towns and their empire uh, to, 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 to Jesus. They've left a lot behind already. They've made that big turn. It's not the big 180 degree change of course that Paul's worried about. Uh, he doesn't see them falling for that. It's the, it's the subtle differences, the subtle divergence that's probably closest to taking them captive. So look again at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. 
and uh, verses 9 and 10, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. So the contrast, empty versus full, emptiness versus fullness. Someone seems to be steering these young Christians perhaps only slightly away from Jesus, that they're doing all right, but they just need something else to fill them up and make them whole. And verses 16 to 18 give us clues about two different options that they might be hearing. We might imagine that Paul looks on this young church like a ship sailing to its destination, and he's not worried that it's going to swing 180 degrees and go back. He's worried about the 5 to 10 degree error that over time just steers them off course to a very different destination. Uh, So verses 16 to 18, they give us that, that left and that right, those two options. So on the left, verse 16, there's what we might call religious observance. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So Jesus is one thing they might be hearing, but your walk is lacking. It's not really full unless you're observing, you know, Christian rules and rituals about food and festivals and all of that. So on the left, just a little to the left of the gospel, there's, there's religious observance and things you want to to do and add and build in. On the right, there's what we might call religious experience. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, which I always have to look up. It means uh, kind of severe self-discipline, kind of abstinence, all of that. Um, Worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind not holding fast to the head. So Jesus is one thing they might be hearing, but, but your walk is lacking. It's not full uh, unless you start to, to, to force your body and mind into submission and start to, to break yourself so that you have these visions and these supernatural, uh, supernatural encounters. And so to the right, there's, there's more of a religious experience. So drift left for observance drift right for experience. And in each direction, the Colossians are hearing the subtle under-message that Jesus is not enough. On his own, Jesus is not enough. Those leaning left are saying, it's really great that you're following Jesus. We're Christians as well, but you know, your Christian life is a bit too informal. We're talking about God Almighty here, the creator of heaven and earth. We're talking about Jesus, the image of invisible God. Do you really think it's right for you to to go eating and drinking this or that as a Christian? Do you really not care about the Christian calendar? Uh, Did I hear correctly that you didn't observe Lent this year, that you had a cream egg in the middle of Lent? Are you really going to do that or go there on a Sunday, on the Lord's Day? It's great that you've got Jesus, but your Christian life is just a bit casual, a bit empty. If you really want a fuller experience of living for him, you need to do this and this and this. If you're going to have faith to the full, that's religious observance. And those leaning on the right are saying, well, it's really great that you're following Jesus. We're Christians too. But don't you know that your Christian life is a bit too formal? The opposite, isn't it? You don't seem to be you know, winning the battle against your sin. You don't seem to be that excited to read your Bible. Prayer seems to be such a chore for you. Your worship seems to be so dry. Your witness to your friends has ground to a halt if it ever got started. 
Don't you hunger for a fuller, closer, more satisfying walk with God, a more mind-blowing experience of the Spirit's power, a real vision of him, a miraculous encounter with him? Come with us and we'll show you what you need to enjoy all of that, to have faith to the full, religious experience. So just, just, just subtle differences uh, this way for a richer spiritual observance. This way for a richer uh, spiritual experience. And Paul says, watch out. Those ideas of, of full this and full that, they are empty. These people offering to give you this freedom are, whether they know it or not, only offering to take you captive. So about the religious observances, Paul says, verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. See, the worship life of Old Testament Israel was, was very formal and very busy and very vibrant with all sorts of activity, sacrificing and burning and lighting candles and swinging incense and breaking bread and laying hands and chanting prayers and all of that uh, busyness. And Paul says, don't put the cart before the horse. All of that stuff was to point to Christ. It's just a big bank of pictures, uh, all to point to Christ. It's all shadow. He's the substance. And about religious experiences, Paul says, verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. And goodness, it's, it's tempting, isn't it, to get sucked into the, the enthusiasm and the excitement and the charisma of people who talk about all sorts of spiritual experiences. And we think that, that we don't have that, whether it's you know, something from the severe to the supernatural, that something that they have. And Paul says that anyone who's insisting on that sort of thing for you and for your walk with Christ is more than likely running around like a headless chicken. And that's too bad because the head is Christ. Uh, it's Christ, verse 19. And in Christ that we're fed and nourished, that we grow in strength and spirit. We don't need more than Christ. We need more of Christ. And Paul says, if you need proof that this is empty talk, look at the results, verse 20. Look at the results. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still, in, uh, still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations according to human precepts and teachings? I'm just skipping ahead to the other end of those, those hyphens because it's hard to read it, isn't it? Why do you submit to regulations according to human precepts and teachings? Like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Uh, these have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and that severe asceticism, the severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, just to simplify how easy it would be to walk with Christ as Lord if all we had to do was follow a formula of fussy formalities. Or on the other side, how easy it would be to walk with Christ as Lord if all we had to do was surrender to uh, spiritual spectaculars. Those things look great. They look so authentic. They look so wise. And Paul says they do not work. They do not work. They do not deal with your sin. They do not make you more like Christ. They do not help you walk with him. Paul says, watch out. 
these ideas, just these subtle variations, or fool this or fool that, they are empty. There are, there are holes in the bottom of those buckets. These people offering to give you this fullness are, are in fact helping to, to empty you. To get, they want to give you freedom, but they are helping to take you captive because whether they know it or not, uh, you have everything that you need in Christ. They can only rob you of what you have because you have everything you need in Christ. That's our final idea for tonight. Keep going with Christ as Lord. Don't be taken captive in uh, by, by empty religion because you have everything you need in Christ. So let's just rewind a little. We've skipped the middle part where uh, Paul outlines all of this for us, and it's, it's a little complicated, some of these verses. I hope you're ready to do a little bit of work in a moment. Let's just read verses 9 and 10. Uh, verse 9, for in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So uh, you've heard uh, the one about the half glass of water, haven't you? So uh, I have, a, I have a glass. It's, com it's completely empty at the minute. Uh, there's a jug, but I'm not going to start pouring water just for the sake of a bad illustration. But, uh, but you've heard about the half glass of water. You know, the pessimist says it's half empty, and the optimist says it's half full. And you've got to figure out whether you're the pessimist or you're the optimist. Well, while you're thinking about that, the realist uh, calls the waiter for a refill, and the uh, opportunist drinks the water, and the entrepreneur sells off the glass. Um, uh, well, it goes on. If you, want, if you want some more, it goes on. Uh, you know, the accountant warns that the glass is 50% in the red, subject to audit. The nutritionist points out there's not enough water in the glass to meet a person's daily needs. The English lit teacher ponders the symbolism of the glass lacking fullness. The therapist says, how does this half glass of water make you feel? And the philosopher wanders off muttering about it being impossible to tell if the glass is even really there. And um, uh, if you go online, you can find more of those which are similarly funny or not, depending on your, um, well, depending on whether you think it's half full or half empty. Um, so Paul, uh, Paul himself is a half-empty and a half-full guy. So he's, he's got emptiness in mind and he's got fullness in mind. He says to these young Christians, watch out uh, because these ideas of fullness, these claims of fullness are actually empty. You already have fullness in Christ. You're full to the brim in Christ. So verse 9, the fullness of deity dwells in him. He's fully God and fully man, of course, the creator, the sovereign Lord, the king of kings, the almighty, all-knowing, all-loving, all-good God the Son, come as a man among his creatures. God in the flesh, all the fullness of God in the flesh. And verse 10, you have been filled in him already. It's past tense, it's done. You have been filled in him, in the one who is the, the definition of fullness, in him who is the head of all rule and authority, the victorious king. So if you're a Christian, you've been filled to the brim with all the fullness of the one who is God in the flesh, fully God and the victorious king of, of all. So anything that takes you away from Jesus, anything that steers you off course from Jesus, anything that tries to add something on to Jesus, boxes you've got to tick tasks you've got to complete, stages you've got to work through, observances you've got to make, charismatic experiences and visions you've got to have, all of that can only rob you of what you have in Christ. Simply by trusting Christ, you have fullness, you have full victory, you have full assurance that you are fully right with God. You're his child forever. 
And we come to these difficult verses in the middle, verses 11 to 15, where Paul reminds the Colossians how this fullness, how this filling happened. I want to cover these briefly, and uh, we'll, we're, we're going to cover them just very briefly. Then we're going to try and summarize them and get some of the momentum of them as we sweep towards uh, towards finishing up. So, um, so, so tune in now just for verses 11 to 15. We need to do a little bit of concentrating for those. So Paul reminds the Colossians... Uh, how this full salvation happened. So look at verse 11. In him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, so not a physical thing, but by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So, so circumcision in the Old Testament is all about being identified as belonging to God, the people set apart for him. Well, with a metaphorical, with a spiritual circumcision, Jesus has taken you to be his own and, and separated you out from a life of self-centered, self-worship. Uh, that's, that's sin, and he has pulled you out of that and marked you as his own and set you apart for Christ-centered, true worship. Uh, so, so verse 11, we're set apart for Jesus. How has that happened? Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Okay, so the old me worshiper is dead with Jesus in the grave and the new God worshiper is risen with Jesus and is alive. So spiritually speaking, the old me is dead, the new me is alive. Verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, the sinful nature you, God, has made alive together with Christ. So we were, the, we were the spiritual walking dead. We were just talking about this the other day in Bethany. Uh, I'm not a big fan of zombie movies. I don't know whether there seem to be a lot of zombie movies and zombie television shows at the moment. And we always identify with the survivors. You know, we're, we're in the camp. We're trying to grow our own vegetables. We're trying to stay alive and maybe try and develop the serum, the anti-venom, whatever it is that reverses this curse on the human race. Well, open up Ephesians, it says that we're dead in our trespasses and sins in which we walked. So we're not the survivors. We're not, we're not the, the humans. We are the, we're the zombies. Spiritually, we are the walking dead. Spiritually, we are the walking dead. Uh, but God makes us alive. God made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt, that stood against us with its legal demands. So God has cancelled all of that record of our sin, all that debt that we have. That sounds a little bit like a fudge. We do need justice. We need uh, the world to be put right. We can't have our sin swept under the carpet, but it's not been swept under the carpet. It's been nailed to the cross. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Uh, Jesus, uh, he, didn't, uh, he didn't ignore our death penalty. He served it. He didn't write off our debt. He paid it. And so verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. There's, um, there's, a, there's a technique when you're making an argument in court or what have you where you concede everything that you can concede. Everything you think the opposition is about to get up and say and throw, throw out into the room to, to hurt your argument, you say it first you concede as much as you can concede. And what does that do? It just It's like their own weapons are falling out of their hands. Well, here, 
the, the rulers and authorities, the, the evil uh, anti-God powers of the, of the universe want to throw all these accusations at us, make them all stick, but there's just no stick. What did we say this morning? We're spiritual Teflon in Christ because it all stuck to him. It was all carried in him. He, he took it all on him like Velcro and we, we are Teflon. So he's disarmed the rulers and the authorities. All of the accusations they've got uh, in, the, in the quiver, every, every dart in the quiver is gone. It's missing. It's, it, they're disarmed uh, and even put to open shame. He's triumphed over them. Not only did Jesus deal with our sin, he's defeated every spiritual power behind every deceitful teaching. Uh, he's defeated it all at the cross. Uh, and how did he make a spectacle? How does it say he triumphed over them uh, in, in death? Well, their best efforts to defeat God, to kill his savior Jesus, actually served as the mechanism for his total victory. Just imagine the the, the glee with which they thought they could spoil uh, God's salvation by killing his Savior, his Son. And that's exactly how God's salvation was achieved. I mean, shooting yourself in the foot is nowhere near strong enough as a statement. Uh, they've, they, they've signed and sealed and delivered God's total victory over them, these, these evil powers. Totally humiliating. So look, let's summarize. Let's try and get some of that momentum back. Just skim over some of these verses again with me, and we'll try to, we'll try to pick up the momentum as we go towards finishing. Uh, so, verse 9, in Christ dwells the fullness of God. Verse 10, you are full to the brim in him. Verse 11, you've been set apart as his own. Verse 12, by your sinful nature dying with him and your eternal resurrection life beginning in him. Verse 13, you were dead to God in sin, but you are forgiven and alive in Christ. Verse 14, all that's, that counted against you was nailed to the cross in Christ. Verse 15, whose total victory was won right there. So verse 16, are you really going to start trusting that it's religious observance keeping you right with God? Verse 17, all those old shadows were to show you the rock-solid Savior, the substance Verse 18, are you really going to start trusting in religious experience for your assurance uh, with God? Verse 19, it's in Christ that you're alive and safe and growing. Verse 20, dead religion doesn't belong to the new life you have in Christ. Verse 23, no matter how wise it looks, it is weightless, it is empty, it makes no impact, it doesn't work. And so chapter 3, verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That word hidden is, is um, well, it gives us encryption. Our life has been encrypted. It's been, uh, it's been locked away, coded away, put in the safe <laughs> Uh, behind the combination lock with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, well, then you also will appear with him in glory. We don't need more than Jesus. We need more of Jesus. And so how do you know, you're on a, how do you know that you're a Christian? How do you know that you're on the right track? Uh, what is it that reassures you? When you go to bed tonight, 
at the end of another Sunday, what is it that gives you confidence for, uh, for the week ahead and for eternity? Are you taking assurance from religious observance, from coming here and singing and praying and, well, this morning, uh, taking communion? Is, it, is that what gives you the assurance that you need? Are you taking assurance from religious experiences, from trying to work yourself up somehow in worship, trying to generate something that feels like a connection to the supernatural? You know, the typical Baptist church doesn't, uh, doesn't give much scope for either of those. We don't light, light candles. We don't burn incense. We don't insist on corporate fasting, nor do we dim the lights for songs and repeat a chorus over and over for five minutes trying to feel something. I was so glad to come in this morning and find that uh, you didn't have the room painted black and there weren't banks of stage lights and the smoke machine wasn't flowing and we weren't trying, you know, I thought, oh goodness, what am I going to say about this paragraph, this religious experience thing, if they're totally just having a 27 repeat choruses, uh, we'll have to think about whether I want to go through with it and say all that. Uh, but what is, what's your assurance? Is it that, you know, you sat through two sermons today? <laughs> Maybe you did have to sit through them a bit, but is that is that the assurance? You know, what 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 is it today? What what is it that you what is it that keeps you comfortable when you go home? That persuades you that you're you're on the right track. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. Maybe you want to go home and read chapter 3. It's all about fixing our eyes on Christ, killing off everything in our attitudes and our affections and our activities that doesn't fit with him, looking to one another to grow more like him together, living for Christ our King in every sphere of life, still not for assurance, but because we're bursting with thanksgiving. Isn't that the key at the end of verse 7? Walking in him, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. None of this is for assurance. It's all as response. In Christ dwells the fullness of God, and we have been filled in him. Let's look to him today. Let's trust him, perhaps even for the first time. He is the Lord. Have him as your Lord. And then go on as you start. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Why don't we pray? And then we'll sing uh, a song to this effect as well. Let's pray. Father, we know that we are created to be worshipers, that that is your design, and that in our fallen state, something functions as Lord over each one of us. Something functions even as Savior uh, over each one of us. Something into which we pour our hopes for fullness, for fulfillment, for satisfaction, even for salvation. We, we, we all have faith in that Lord and Savior, whatever it might be. And Father, in all cases but one, that, that allegiance, that faith is misplaced. But we, we, we praise you and we thank you that in Jesus... All of those things are perfectly placed. He is the Lord of all creation. He is the Savior of all who turn to him. He is the faithful one who alone can be trusted with our worship and our lives. We 
pray that you would help us to, to put down our roots into him for all the nourishment we need to grow up in him. Help us especially to spot those subtly different ideas that that true fullness or real assurance depend on something else or something extra. Father, turning any way away from trusting in Jesus and him alone would be to be fooled, to be taken captive, to be robbed because we are filled uh, in him already. Help us to know that more and more as we walk each day in him, stable and uh, strong and overflowing with thankfulness. And we ask it that he would be glorified, first of all, to us, uh, and then in us and among us, and even through us to this watching world. 